even if you decide not to eat meat, it doesn't mean the bacon won't still smell good. Basically, for some people, they may choose monogamy somewhat like some people choose to be vegetarian. So some people make that choice and that's valid and I'm not going to mess with it if it works for them. Other people I've run into that choose monogamy, literally when I ask them questions, the way their mind works is like a monogamous mind. You know, they're not really noticing a whole bunch of other people and things. They're very focused on their partner and it's not hard for them to be monogamous. But there's a lot of people that come to me where they want to be non-monogamous but they're scared, they're filled with shame, they're scared of the repercussions. And with them, especially when they're coming to me, who's known as a non-monogamous therapist that serves this community, I'm really gonna ask them questions about that and help them sort out what is their authentic truth. Welcome back, everyone, to Diary of an Empath. My next guest is Kate Laurie. She is a licensed marriage and family therapist, a sex-positive therapist, and the author of the book, Open Deeply. Her mission is to shift the world from seeing sex as a shameful thing to seeing it as healthy and beautiful and worthy of celebration. Um, I am so humbled that you are coming on this show. I am so glad that we got connected by Dr. Balistrieri, who is amazing and did a podcast episode with her. Yeah, she's awesome. And she connected us. And I'm so happy that we get to have this conversation and kind of dive deep into, you know, monogamy and sex. And so I'm really curious as to what your background is. How did you get into this niche? Because it is a very unique category to be diving in with therapy and your field. I started seeing clients, as a lot of people do, while I was a therapist, right? So I, I was studying to be a therapist starting in 2002, started seeing clients in 2003. About that time is when I met my partner privately in 2003. And I had had previously an 11-year monogamous relationship. And very quickly, when I came to LA, I met him within a year. And he was this wild artist. And uh, <laughs> we had conversations in the beginning of our relationship where I thought we were just joking where we would joke about a once a year hall pass, you know, like mm -hmm. who would it be? Would it be Angelina Jolie and all this stuff? And now I can look back and see it was all ramping up to that faithful day that we switched from being monogamous to non-monogamous. But, you know, there was a, a day everything changed. And so I started being non-monogamous back in 2003 and from that point to now has been this massive journey. I've been pretty much every type of non-monogamous you can think of from, you know, polyamorous to being in the swing lifestyle. And, and at this point, I'm 53. So I'm, you know, more low key in a lot of ways, more spiritual, but I still do. I don't identify as monogamous, something other than that. By the time I was ready to start my private practice, people in the non-monogamous community found out. I literally had clients before I had a space. I had to hustle to get a space because my phone started ringing because a lot of basically non-monogamous people, they want to go to a therapist ideally who not only is not judgmental, but is walk the walk, you know? And so very quickly I had a waiting list in my practice and I'd started doing public speaking, et cetera. It's just, you probably understand this because I think you're on your true path. It's like, once you're on your true path, everything just starts moving really, yes. really fast. Very quickly. And all these opportunities just come at you. And the spiritual journey, part of it is learning where to say no, because if you say yes to everything, mm -hmm. you'll blow, blow out your adrenal glands, you know, you'll like burn out in some way, right? 
And so that's kind of what happened for me. I love that. And so I love that you even talk about the spiritual component. I relate with that so much because I'm a very spiritual person. Most people know that. Listen to my podcast. I also do tarot readings as well. And it's been very much a part of my journey. And when it started, it just has projected. Like I wasn't even ready for how fast it was going to move. But one thing that stood out to me is, you know, when you talk about how it just kind of felt like you, when you made this change, it felt like you were on your purpose. What was that change like for you, especially when you went from being in a monogamous lifestyle to all of a sudden shifting and being in a non-monogamous lifestyle? It wasn't easy because the, the person that I was involved with, and I was very in love with him, but let's just say he is a male muse. We're not together anymore. We were together for 13 years. We were married for the time. He is a male muse, but not the gentle kind, kind of like a male muse. It kind of more like feels like being tied to the end of a bull, you know, bringing you through a China (laughs) shop or something. But I would say with him, when I look back on that 13 year relationship, there was a lot of pain, but he was my adventure buddy. And there was so much joy too. And like all muses, well, maybe not all muses, but this muse, he could see things in me way before I could see them in myself. I mean, I can tell you about that day. I came home from work. At the time, I was in graduate school. I was working three jobs because I didn't have a whole lot of money. So I was a graduate assistant, etc. At the time, I was working at a place that specialized in children uh, who had been sexually abused. My life was very intense. And I came home to our little bungalow apartment that was behind the main house and came in ready for, you know, my precious hour of cuddle time with him before I'd have to start studying the rest of the night. And when I came in, he had a picture of a woman, you know, basically provocatively posed, her legs were spread and she was kind of smiling out at us. And he was smiling at me, almost like they were complicit in some secret. And he said, I have a big idea. And he had talked to his good friend, Sadie Allison, who's a pretty well-known sex educator. She's written a lot of books and, and et cetera and so on. And he was saying, you know, I've cheated on women before and I don't want to do that with this woman. I love her so much. And Sadie said, well, why don't you try swinging? And so he brought it to me. Now, I had grown up, even though my family are Canadians, so I'm, I'm very much a progressive Democrat, open-minded thinker, but I was raised for certain reasons in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. So I was raised in the Deep South, very conservative environment. Mm -hmm. And so when this wild artist was presenting this idea, I was the scared one. I was the one that said, this is going to ruin my career. My mom's going to find out. My peers are going to find out. What are you talking about? Like, And I had a negative image in my head of what it meant to be non-monogamous. It was completely incorrect. Like I literally had this vision of (laughs) this vision of this orange van, like 70s van with green shag carpet, like totally 70s style. And some dude with a thick gold chain and the and the shirt open and his downtrodden wife behind him. And he's like motioning me into the van. I literally (laughs) immediately had this image in my head. And I, was, I think I even said to him, I'm like, what are you talking about? Only creepy people swing. Because I had only seen these really negative things on TV. Mm. And that started a dialogue. And he's just like, Kate, we're not going to do anything that we don't want to. Why don't we just go out to dinner with a few people and just see what happens? You're my priority. I love you. Let's just explore and have fun. 
So that's kind of how I began. And that's so interesting that like that dynamic of, you know, even some of our preconceived notions that we have. And it's it's amazing that you were open-minded to at least try something different. I find it interesting too, that he was like, I don't want to cheat on you, but this is what I'm thinking. So let's dive into monogamy because I think too, we have this notion that monogamy is the right thing to do. That's the way that it should be, whether it's a religious upbringing, whether that's the stigma of society and what society tells us. But I think that my opinion, you should do what works for you as a couple. But I'm always curious to look at the other sides of things too, of, you know, is monogamy a real thing? Or did we just make it up? You know, did we as as the human species just one day say that's the right thing to do? What are your thoughts on that? Side note, did you guys know that I'm not only a therapist, but I'm also a professional tarot reader? It's not exactly me hovering over a crystal ball telling your future. It's a tool to connect with your guides and your higher self to help you in certain areas of your life. Tarot genuinely changed my life and it can potentially change yours too. Click on the link in this podcast for more info. Okay, back to the podcast. I agree with you that whatever works for a couple, that's what they should do. And if they are in alignment, that's that's lovely and beautiful. But I would really invite anybody to really look at their choices. So let's just say that everything that's going on in someone's mind kind of indicates that they're non-monogamous. They have crushes on a lot of people all the time. They may be with their partner, but they're noticing all the beautiful people on the beach when they go for a walk. There's a lot of indicators that they might be non-monogamous. Even then, someone may choose to be monogamous. Like Dr. Christopher Ryan, who wrote Sex at Dawn, says, even if you decide not to eat meat, it doesn't mean the bacon won't still smell good. You know, (laughs) so basically for some people, they may choose monogamy somewhat like some people choose to be vegetarian. So some people make that choice and that's valid and I'm not going to mess with it if it works for them. Other people I've run into that choose monogamy, literally when I ask them questions, The way their mind works is like a monogamous mind. You know, they're not really noticing a whole bunch of other people and things. They're very focused on their partner. And it's not hard for them to be monogamous. And again, I'm not going to mess with that. But there's a lot of people that come to me where they want to be non-monogamous, but they're scared. They're filled with shame. They're scared of the repercussions. And with them, especially when they're coming to me, who's known as a non-monogamous therapist that serves this community, I'm really going to ask them questions about that and help them sort out what is their authentic truth. I think I'm that person who identifies with monogamy. But at the other side of the coin, I also question monogamy. It's super weird. Like I'm the type of person, if I'm in a relationship, I really don't have eyes for other people. Like, of course, if I'm out with my girls or if I'm out and I see a fine man, I'm going to be like, oh, that's a good looking man. You know, if I see Dwayne Johnson walking down the street, hell yeah, that's he's a good looking. <laughs> he's a big guy. But, right. you know, when I'm with one person, I, I I tend to be very tunnel vision. I tend to want monogamy. I tend to want that closeness. And I don't tend to seek that out with other people. But I'm also, I like to really understand humanity. And I almost wonder at our core, if you look back at our ancestors, our perspective was to try to survive and try to, you know, we want to reproduce, we want to make more of each other. So men tended to be with more women and women tended to 
be with a man that they can survive with. So I almost wonder at what point was monogamy kind of like the accepted stigma of society. And, you know, you mentioned in your book, because you're an author and, and you wrote a book called Open Deeply, and you talked about how past attachments can impact your non-monogamy journey. Tell me about that, because that, that sounds very fascinating to me. Yeah, well, so just to let you know, as you probably know, you'll see different models. It's always four types, but they can be slowly, slightly different. I tend to use Diane Poole Heller's model, which is secure, ambivalent, avoidant, and disorganized. Those are the three types. And so the secure attachment style, as, as you probably know, being a therapist and all, is that person that oftentimes did have the golden childhood. The The caregivers that were involved in their life were pretty consistent and they got the message from life that the world kind of has their back. And so when they go into non-monogamy, they bring that framework into non-monogamy. And so non-monogamy tends to not be as difficult for them because, you know, if their lover has other partners or they decide to have a threesome or something like that. They're not, they're just not as scared because things have gone well for them and that's their life experience and they feel secure in that. The other three models, it's, it's a different scenario. So the ambivalent type, the anxious ambivalent type, they may struggle within non-monogamy. They feel, may feel a lot of anxiety, wondering if their partner is going to leave them, wondering if they're not doing enough to keep their partner close. They, the way that shows up may look different ways. Within non-monogamy, they may be the one that's always anxiously bringing up different topics and different worries within non-monogamy. Sometimes it can skew the other way. Like for instance, a lot of women, we've been trained in our, in our society to be overgivers. So sometimes to manage the anxiety, some women will overgive say yes when it's not a true yes, as a way to minimize any kind of drama or discomfort in the relationship. So in the short run, it may cause less anxiety, but down the road, that anxiety may build and end up being a negative thing in their non-monogamous relationship. That's one thing I see with that type. So it can go either way in terms of how it looks, but in their head is that anxiety, that that dissatisfaction, that scanning the relationship dynamic that's going on inside. With the avoidant, which can show up as being very withdrawn, that type within non-monogamy, they're better when you just when they are a secondary partner or more of a casual partner and there's less pressure on them. If you break up with your primary and now that secondary avoidant partner has shifted to being your primary, guess what? All of a sudden they may start acting out, you know, they might start withdrawing, you may start chasing, and this whole negative spiral may happen. The avoidant type is better if you have them as more of a tertiary or secondary partner versus having them as a primary. Now, the disorganized type a lot of times had a really rough background. Now, when someone thinks of a very traumatic background with a lot of abuse and neglect, that sort of thing, you know, as therapists, we see that showing up a million different ways. Some people have PTSD. Other people end up being borderline with very crazy relationships, etc. So let's just say trauma can show up different ways. And if you have a trauma history and you've worked on yourself, it does not mean that you're necessarily going to be a disorganized type in how you show up in your relationship. 
You know, you may have worked on yourself so much that you don't show up this way. But the disorganized type does tend to be very chaotic within relationships, a little bit similar to a borderline personality disorder. And so when you date that type within non-monogamy and you've set agreements within the relationship, one way they might show up is to break the relationship agreements you've set. Maybe you're like, okay, I'm okay with you doing a lot of things. Just don't have sex with my sister. And so that's the one thing that they do, you know, or, or if they're not, you know, so that's more of the type that's uh, disorganized with some narcissism, a little sociopathy, right? And then there might also be that disorganized type that is just very terrified of your behaviors, right? So they're throwing huge fights or sometimes coming towards you and then pulling away. It's just a very chaotic type. And so basically all three of these types I see within non-monogamy. Very interesting. And I, and one thing that you said that really, really kind of clicked with me is how, and it makes sense to me, how if you have somebody who's more of an anxious attachment style and maybe they do tend to lead more towards monogamy, but because maybe they're afraid they're going to lose their partner, or maybe they're afraid that their partner is going to get more distant if they don't do it. And they may end up in a situation where they say yes, but in reality, maybe it's something that continues to bother them. And as we know, people that have more of an anxious attachment style tend to have some protest behavior. And I almost wonder how that would manifest in a non-monogamous relationship, if you have someone who is more anxious and who really maybe not is not comfortable with that, but just doesn't want to communicate it or is not capable of communicating it, and now they have other behaviors that maybe can look more protesty. Maybe they're doing things to try to get their attention. Maybe they're making posts about the other person. Have you ever seen that type of behavior style of somebody who is more anxious? Basically, the whole thing within non-monogamy is two things are really important. Within non-monogamous circles, they always talk about how communication is important. But I would say what's even more important is compassion. Compassion for your partner and compassion for yourself. And when we are in a relationship like that, it's so important that we're in touch with our true compass, which I would say is your thoughts, your emotions, and your body sensations working in tandem from a grounded, centered place. And from that place, you're more likely to be in your higher self, your more spiritual self. You're, more, you're less likely to act out in those ways. And also, because non-monogamy pokes at our attachment injuries way more than monogamy does, that means that we may get low-key triggered within the relationship or relationships much more easily. And so I came up with a communication model that I call EPIC that I can just tell you briefly uh, yes, please, is, please. is basically it's a combination. It's very inspired by Imago Dialogue, the trauma resiliency models made by the Trauma Resiliency Institute, and then also a little bit of Buddhism. The, it's called EPIC. So the E is the emotional piece, which is the empathizing piece. The P is the physical piece. So this is the grounding centering piece that happens before, during, and after. The I is the intellectual piece, the validating piece. And the C is the compassion piece, compassion and action that will happen at the tail end along with, again, grounding and centering the person. So the P in Epic, the physical, the grounding, again, it happens all through it. 
And that's so key, again, because non-monogamy folks that are attachment injuries way more. So when we're having a hard dis- discussion, the chance that we might be low-key triggered is greater. I love that because I think that some people, they like to have set rules and protocols that they can follow to do things. I think a lot of people, when they're trying to get treatment for something or when they're trying to start something new or when they're trying to change certain behaviors, they don't always know where to start. And people want to be told what to do. How can I do this? Give me a step. That's why you know programs that have these step programs are so successful. Now, what about You talk about non-monogamy, but is there a difference between a non-monogamous relationship and a poly relationship? Because I've heard both of those terms. Is it the same? Is there a difference? In my mind, non-monogamy is an umbrella term. And then underneath that is kind of a continuum. And there's different ways that you can talk about it. But I, I like to express it from the standpoint of being like a risk continuum. So on the left-hand side of our risk continuum, let's call it, you know, the swing lifestyle. And then on the right-hand side is not only polyamory, but a whole bunch of people living in a house raising kids together. Like, okay. So to answer your question, let's differentiate between the, the two extremes on the pole. So the swing lifestyle usually is a situation where um, it's oftentimes very couple-based. So two people that are romantically, emotionally monogamous and sexually non-monogamous, they tend to have more boundaries in their relationship and agreements. And they're doing it largely to have adventures together. They're likely to call each other adventure buddies. Their intention when they have an adventure is, is, is to go home with each other and at the end of the night for the most part. And I joke that a whole bunch of a swing lifestyle people, you know, at a hotel takeover or something like that is almost like an accountant's convention. You can go from one accountant to the next and their rule book is pretty similar. You won't be Mm -hmm. shocked by the difference. And that is another reason why it's less risk. And when I say risk, I'm talking about um, the risk for pain. That does not mean I'm favoring that. It's just, you know, like if you go... If you were to go down to your stockbroker and you were to make a stock for- portfolio, the stocks that might have the highest gain also have the highest risk. So higher risk is not necessarily a bad thing. It's just, you know, it's just more of a risk. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we go over to the far right and we talk about poly couples, they are emotionally non-monogamous, emotionally and sexually non-monogamous. Some people are asexual, but for the most part, you're talking about people that are non-monogamous, both emotionally and sexually. So they are not scared of bringing love on board. And I use the word couple, but of course, as soon as you're talking about poly, you're talking about many loves. So, Mm -hmm. and the way that looks can be a bazillion different derivations because within non-monogamy, it's like making a custom made dress or suit. You get to build you get to say what that suit or dress looks like. So with polyamory, it may be that you both have two separate lovers, or it may be that you're in a quad for people that are in love, or, you know, there can just be a million different combinations on the poly side. And between those two poles are basically hybrids, like maybe a couple that sometimes plays together, but they both have 
which looks more like swing lifestyle. And then they both have lovers on the outside, you know, and that might look more like Polly, especially if they're in love with those two people. Interesting. I've always known about poly relationships from watching like sister wives. I think most of most of the people who are not familiar with this are probably going to be like, oh, yeah, and that's what they think that it is. I, I think a lot of people don't really understand that it's so much broader than that. In your opinion, what are some of the misconceptions about non-monogamous relationships, poly relationships, swinger mm-hmm. lifestyle? Because I think that there's a lot of people, probably even including myself, because I've never partaken in that lifestyle, that there's a lot of misconceptions that are revolved around that. What are some of the main ones that you see? Okay, well, you actually just touched on it without knowing uh, when you said sister wives. So I'm pretty sure, I'm 99% sure that that's about polygamy, not polyamory. I could be wrong. Okay. So please, what is the difference with this? Okay, so... Polygamy, one, so I have never had a polygamous client, nor have I ever met someone who's polygamous. I've had friends whose parents were polygamous. Like I've had friends, like I have a friend from Senegal in, in Africa, and his dad was polygamous, you know, um, in Senegal, and he had two wives, and he was raised by a whole village. Back in the day, I don't think there's many Mormon communities that are like this, but back in the day, there was polygamous communities within, within Utah, right? Or in, mm-hmm. well, probably different, different. I don't, I, like I said, this is outside of my scope of practice because I don't, it. you know, I, I just have talked to some people who have had relatives that are polygamous. So polygamy is, is a legal term and it basically means multiple spouses And so polygamy, there's two different types. And again, outside of my scope of practice, so I'm a little fuzzy. There's polyandry, and then there's another one. One one means multiple wives, and another one means multiple husbands. So, you know, when you go to, there's a lot of places in Africa that this still goes on. There's different places where this still goes on, not so much in the United States. In in the United States, um, there's a lot of people that are polyamorous. Polyamorous is not a legal term. In fact, here you couldn't, you know, you can't marry more than one spouse. Polyamory, as, as I described, is usually being emotionally, romantically, and sexually non-monogamous. So you may have other lovers. And a main difference, usually not always, is that it's, so within polyamory, it's egalitarian. So when I say not always, you know, I can't speak on polygamy. There may be some forms of polygamy that are more egalitarian. But usually when I hear about polygamy, it's a, a man with a whole bunch of women, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, it's not balanced and even. Whereas mm-hmm. within polyamory, usually it is way more balanced and even. It's not really dictated as much by social nor- norms or patriarchy. In fact, a lot of times it's quite the contrary where all parties involved have a lot of agency and it's equitable, or at least that's the goal from most polyamorous leaders. Interesting. Yeah. And I think that that is a huge misconception because I I think even for me, I wasn't quite sure what the difference between the two is. So if we're just speaking, you know, in terms of non-monogamous in general, and if there was a couple of things that you wanted people listening to know about it, that maybe there are, 
that can be one of the misconceptions. Are there any other misconceptions that you see when it comes to non-monogamous relationships or what people get wrong when they think about that? Well, it's been a while since this has happened because at, at least here in LA, where I am, uh, people are really starting to know more and more about it. But I remember even like five years ago, sometimes if I went to a party that was mostly monogamous people and they found out that I was a therapist seeing non-monogamous people, one, they would assume that I was monogamous and that that's, that I was trying to fix these people. That's one thing that they would assume, which is mm. not true. I actually also identify as non-monogamous. But because they made that assumption, they would immediately start talking smack and say things like, yeah, I know this non-monogamous couple and they are a train wreck and they came to this party and they were just hitting on everybody and those people are just a mess and they don't have any boundaries and they'll just touch you and like all this stuff, right? Mm -hmm. One thing you have to keep in mind is most non-monogamous people are in the closet because of the bigotry. So the ones that are functioning well, a lot of times you don't even know about them. Sometimes the ones that you know about are the ones that might be a train wreck. At this point, the latest statistic I've seen is that one-fifth of the United States has engaged in consensual non-monogamy at some point in their lives, and 20, 29% of adults under 30 today consider open relationships to be morally acceptable. So, you know, at this point, it's becoming pretty common, but that person at the party who's saying all of that, a lot of times I'll kind of tease them a little bit, and I'll just say... So if you imagine going to uh, a non-monogamous party, like a play party where there's sex going on and you knock on the door, do you imagine the door opening up and that there's this writhing pile of bodies going up to the ceiling, this <laughs> right, you know, they're all having sex and they're making out and, and that person grabs your hand and pulls you towards the writhing pile of bodies and you can smell the sex in the room and all that. <laughs> and they'll kind of, you know, they have their drink in their hand and they'll look kind of sheepish and they're like, uh, yeah, that's kind of what I picture. And I'm like, no, actually non-monogamous people a lot of times have a lot more boundaries than monogamous people. Like to be successful at it, you have to have a lot of boundaries. So it's actually quite the contrary. It's, it's very far from that. You can find play parties, but that's, <laughs> that's not usually how it goes down. I mean, with anything, you can find people that are operating in a way that is unhealthy. But when you get in circles that are healthy, it's very boundaried and consent is very much consent culture and discussions about consent are um, very much on the table all the time. So I went to one of those parties once unknowingly and a friend, we went to like an after party thing and I started noticing, you know, just I'm very intuitive and I started picking up on little things and I'm like, huh, something's a little different here. And, you know, towards the end, I remember there was a guy that was there and he was by himself and I was actually very interested in him. And then I noticed he had a ring on and I'm just like, are you married? He said, yeah, but she's, and she's not here. And I'm like, oh, interesting. And the other guy that was there when he walked away was like, yeah, that's not cool. He shouldn't be here without his wife. And that's when I started to really pick up on things. And I'm like, oh, I think I understand what's going on over here. But mm -hmm. one thing they knew that I wasn't. There was no boundary crossing. There was nothing that was inappropriate from anyone. And in fact, the other guy that was next to me said, you know, that's just something you don't do. You don't come here without your spouse. That's just part of our rules. And that's when I started to put one and two together. And 
there was a moment though where my friend is like, it's time for us to go. And I'm like, but why? I'm having a good time. She's like, it's time to go. She's like, trust <laughs> me, this is the time that you want to leave. She's like, it's time for us to leave. And it, I'm like, oh, oh, okay. I understand now. But you know, they were, it was very respectful. There was no boundary crossing at all because everybody knew. But let's just say there's a couple and maybe one couple, the, the man or the woman or both women, are wanting to try this non-monogamous lifestyle. How do you approach that? Because, you know, I hear your story about how your partner just kind of, you know, showed you this picture and was like, hey, let's try it. But that may not work for everybody. So when you have a client that comes to you and says, hey, I really want to introduce this to my partner, what are some ways that someone can do this and feel comfortable doing this? Because I, I could understand too, it might be a little scary to bring this up? I think one thing, sometimes you can just start out by fantasizing in bed. I mean, even before you say that this is something you're interested in, sometimes with couples, if they have a good sexual relationship, they might talk about their sexual fantasies with each other, you know, just a sexy talk and it's not super serious, right? You know, and, and so then you can kind of get a feel for how your partner reacts. Now, granted, sometimes our fantasies need to stay just firmly in our brain and not be acted out, but it, it's a starting place. Once that conversation happens, if the other, let's say the, the other person is a little bit curious, I'm always trying to get my clients to pump the brakes because a lot of my clients that come to me, they want to run, leap, gallop down the trail of non-monogamy, especially if they have been great partners before. They're great parenting partners. They're great business partners. They're best friends. This will be easy, right? And I, when I started out doing this work, I think I had time, but because they'd be so excited between the two weeks that I hadn't seen them, all this stuff had happened. So now I front load a lot of information to clients and say, please don't start out that way. Maybe just go to an in-person talk about non-monogamy Talk to some of the people that are in the audience, get to know some of the non-monogamous community, go to the bar next door, get a glass of wine and talk about your feelings. Just start out by seeing some live lectures like that, especially if you're in a big city and that's available to you. There's no need to go fast in this. If you don't have live lectures, you can watch, you know, reading a book on non-monogamy and then slowly talking about your feelings. It's so important to go slow because what I see a lot of people do, especially if both people are interested in it, they'll go to one event, they'll have certain emotional experiences and they'll be so excited they'll go to the next when they haven't fully processed the first thing. And now they're just stacking unfinished emotional material on top of each other and then that, that can cause problems down the road. When you're bringing this up to your partner, another thing that I'd say is think about what their backstory is like. If they've had a lot of betrayal in their past, if they're an insecure attachment style, what you're proposing may be terrifying to them. Another thing that's really great too is maybe even going to therapy. If you don't see a therapist, finding somebody that you can talk to and walk you through it. Now, do you find that there are rules to non-monogamy? Should there be rules? If so, what are some of those maybe unwritten rules or rules that are helpful in a non-monogamous relationship? Well, again, it's custom made. So if you talk to any couple, triad, quad, they're going to have different relationship agreements and boundaries. 
A lot of times people in non-monogamy don't use the word rule because it sounds too heavy handed. And also non-monogamous people tend to fall in love under what I would call a six love language beyond the famous five, which I would call carefree, fun, freedom, and adventure. So as, as soon as anything feels like rules, control, they have a tendency to have a hyper negative reaction to that. So they do better with even language that's different, just like agreements or boundaries, language like that, rather than rules, because it sounds like something your parents put upon you when you're a kid. When you think about, again, swing lifestyle people, it may vary, but at the end of the day, usually they're playing together. A lot of times, not always, but that may be a rule that they have. If they play separately, they may have a rule of when when to come back home, whether they're able to spend the night or not. Some people, if, if they invite another lover back to their house, some people choose to have a rule. You know, you can't sleep in our bed. You, you can sleep in the guest bedroom, but not in our bed. Our bed is precious to us. So you see how every couple can be different. There may be certain sexual acts that they don't want their partner to do with other people. Again, it's, it's a dialogue. None of it is put in cement and it tends to shift and change over time because you're basically just creating a harm reduction model. And as you go on this journey, you're going to change and what you need is going to change. Are you happier now that you are non-monogamous? Um, you know, how should I put it? I'll have to say in my 11 year, my 11 year monogamous relationship, again, that was a long time ago. It was back in my twenties. For me, when I look back on that in comparison to the rest of my life, it felt a bit like a cryogenic state. It's probably what I needed at the time because I was making a lot of changes in my life. I moved away from Alabama and now I'm starting my whole life, getting my first master's degree and moving away from home and all of that. And maybe that's what I needed, but maybe but it did feel like a bit of a cryogenic state. One thing that I've noticed with non-monogamous people is they tend to grow very rapidly. Just that openness creates a shift in the brain where you become more open to a lot of things. So all of a sudden you're taking that art class you've been putting off for 10 years, or you're making friends that you didn't have before. Like all these things start to change really rapidly for a lot of people as soon as they switch to non-monogamy. I am happier the more I know how to assert myself, the more I know what I want, the more uh, I know how to make choices from a, as I said, from a place of using my thoughts, emotions, and body sensations from a grounded centered place. When I was younger, I had a tendency to value intellect way too high. And I think that was probably a little bit of internalized misogyny, especially growing up in Alabama, even though I was growing, my mom was very much, you know, a feminist and very much about supporting the rights of people that are black, etc. I was learning about the Southern Poverty Law Center when I was in elementary school. But despite that, I was in a very misogynistic environment. And so a cardinal thing that misogyny teaches is man, logical, good, woman, emotional, bad. And I had that very internalized that if I was logical, that meant I was superior, that I was I was behaving in a superior way. And so when I made choices within non-monogamy for a very long time, it came from that logical place. So mm. if my partner was like, um, how do you feel about me sleeping with Becky? 
I would just think in my head, you know, well, Becky's always been kind to me. She's always been respectful. We've known her for five years. She's always been respectful to my partner. Sure. You know, you can see Becky. I don't have an issue with that. But once I started to track everything all at once, maybe I'd notice a little knife drop in my gut that before I was suppressing. And then I'd have to sit with it and go, well, actually, our anniversary is coming up. Can you can you wait a little bit? Or, you know, there would be something that would come to the surface that previously I'd been unaware of because I was operating like a floating head. And once I was connected to all of that, I was able to make more asks. And immediately I started to feel calmer in my body. Before I had some generalized, you know, not diagnosable or anything, anything but sometimes I was anxious and I just... Uh, I, I would say that my life got way better as soon as I started practicing that. I think it's hard when people are taught from an early age that you should be this way, that if you express your emotions, you're weak, especially for men too. I think it's really hard, you know, in the, in the generation. Um, I think this new generation is kind of getting better at being more open with their mental health and their emotions. But I, I love the ties that you talked about with how people grow up versus how they are and why they might be the way that they are in relationships with monogamy versus non-monogamy. But one thing that, you know, kind of stood out to me is that, that pain or that, that feeling that you felt in your stomach. And for me, I think that's what I would have a hard time with if I tried to be in a non-monogamous relationship. I think I would be more jealous. <laughs> so if, if there's people listening that are kind of like have always teeter-tottered with the thought of maybe being non-monogamous with somebody, how does somebody handle when the jealous feelings come up? You know, how do they deal with that? Because I think it's natural as humans to feel a little bit of jealousy. How, how do you do that? How do you navigate that in, in a non-monogamous relationship? Yeah, well, first, I would say this. Obviously, I've thought about jealousy for a, a long time, being a therapist that works with non-monogamy. The first thing that I do when a client says that they're jealous is I unpack it because it's a complex emotion. And inside jealousy is all these other emotions. You know, uh, a lot of time it can, it can be rage, it can be sadness, fear of loss, like all these things. So that's the first thing I do is I unpack the jealousy suitcase and see what's inside. Also, I get to know their backstory and, and, and get a sense of like, what are we talking about? Because when one person says jealousy from zero to 10, it may be at a two and another person, they may, may be having night terrors and panic attacks because they had such a bad backstory or what have you, right? So the way you treat those two things is totally different. So that's another component. You know, for the, the person that's more of a 10, I might be finding out what it bridges back to, what those moments where they feel the worst what do they bridge back to in the backstory? And I might be doing EMDR, which is a trauma modality to clear those past traumas so that they don't hit a, a, a nine or a 10 when they get upset. Now it's after doing EMDR, it may be a non-issue or it may be a five or something. And now they can negotiate through an uncomfortable moment with success, right? But those are more extreme cases. If I were to give an example, like say... Marjorie and Devin are at a play party together and all night Marjorie is talking to Ben and ignoring Devin and Devin is just 
she's 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 not showing that she's upset because she doesn't want people to know at the party but inside she's just really upset and on the way home they get into this big fight but let's say the next day Devin is able to sit with her feelings and calm down and look at it and and unpack it and so she divides the work in her mind between what is my responsibility in this and what is Marjorie's responsibility in this on her side, she might think, okay, what got triggered? And she may have thought about how Marjorie was laughing at what Ben said all night. And she gets in touch with the feelings, the anxiety, the the knife drop in her gut. And she bridges back in time and she thinks of a time that her parents were driving off at, at the gas station, leaving her at the gas station because they were laughing so hard at something her sibling said. And that happened, all, you know, they were always kind of favoring her sibling because they thought she was hilarious. And it was that, that feeling of, of um, rejection, of, of not feeling loved. And she's like, oh, I felt like that my whole childhood. And so she knows that that's the work that she needs to do on her end to try and heal some of that stuff and maybe ask for some certain things from Marjorie. But let's switch to Marjorie. And she thinks, well, what is Marjorie's responsibility in this? Well, yeah, Marjorie was a bit of a jerk. She ignored me all night. And it was my birthday, by the way. And she was just talking to Ben all night. So she might need to have a conversation with Marjorie and, and let her know how, you know, her feelings. And hopefully if Marjorie knows my epic communication model, <laughs> she will mm-hmm. empathize and validate and help ground Devin through that conversation, right? And figure out how they could do things better in the future. You know, well, what, what do you need, you know, at the end of that conversation and when they're in the com- compassion place, the compassion and action, she might say, um, well, what do you need? The next time we go to a party, can you make sure you check in on me every 30 minutes? Or can you just kind of be by my side for the first 30 minutes and hold my hand? You know, there's, there can be agreements that are made that help reduce the jealousy. Now, obviously, I'm just giving you one little vignette, and it can show up a million ways. And it's a tough conversation. But these are just some initial thoughts. Yeah, and it sounds like communication is big. It sounds like communication is really going to be something key, especially if you want if you're wanting to try a non-monogamous relationship. Now, what about shame? Because I think to, you know, some people may want to try this, but maybe because of how they grew up, maybe their religious upbringing, maybe societal views, they haven't been able to really come to terms with doing it because of maybe how they're feeling. Maybe they feel guilty or feel shameful for doing it. What do you say to somebody who is not trying it or not coming out because they feel guilty or they feel shameful about what they're doing? So let's kind of break that down into a few common camps. So for men, a lot of men, especially kind men who express this to me, they'll say to me, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be kind of like the the douchebag at the gym that's an asshole to women that gets laid all the time, you know, like they have the, they have in their head, a lot of men think that there's two doors that they can choose. They can choose the door where they have a lot of female friends, but they're kind, or they can choose the door where they have a great love life, but they're a jerk. And they think that those are the two options, which mm-hmm. is not true. You, I, I sometimes joke that you can be a noble slut. <laughs> um, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> um, you know, so you have to break down this, this, this thinking that they have in their head. And, you know, uh, being a noble slut is, you know, you may have several lovers, but you're authentic with them. 
you are letting them know who you truly are. You know, like I've had some guys like on dating apps look as if they're say non-monogamous and free, like they're free to have a primary. And then I get them to dinner or whatever. And they say, Oh, I already have a primary. Are you interested in being my secondary? I'm like, no, I'm not looking to be your secondary, you know? And so now they, they've wasted my time. Right. Mm -hmm. So being authentic from the get go, right on your dating apps is important. And then if you see somebody afterwards, don't ghost them, like say, thank you for the night, you know, that, that kind of, that kind of thing. And when you start to see in your mind, this new model of how to be a man operating in this world, you, you can start to break down that that kind of shame that you're going to become a monster. That's the fear that a lot of men have, that they're going to become a monster. And what about women? Because women who might want to try it, but they have this stigma of, you know, I don't want to be viewed as, you know, slutty or somebody who doesn't respect themselves. And we know that that's not the case. We're sex positive, but their own thoughts, their own fears that might be holding them back. What do you, what do you say to somebody who's having those thoughts? And, and you're right. And, and we should probably touch on the the middle, the, the you know, folks that are genderqueer, et cetera. But yeah, you're right. The fear that most women have is, does that mean I'm a slut? And then there's the folks that fear they're, that they're a sex addict, right? But the, the fear that you might be a slut, this is a thing. I'll, I'll usually just kind of tell them what this world is going to be like. One, I'll explain to them that they can be in the closet if they want. The rest of the world does not need to know. You can be any degree of out of the closet, right? It's not in or out. You can slowly come out of the closet. So this is just your your business, right? And so, but within that world, when you start to go to non-monogamous parties, et cetera, you will find out that people are very kind, they're very warm, and nobody is going to shame you. And in fact, it'll probably be the beginning of any kind of sexual shame starting to be broken down just by the environment that you're in, where you're going to more likely be made to feel very beautiful and handsome by the people around you. There's going to be a lot more compliments and and hugs. And I'm not even talking about sex. I'm just talking about warmth. And you're going to see modeled a lot of variation in types of beauty and types of, of people and that it's all embraced. And so I think a lot of that fear of being a slut or, or anything like that melts away very quickly as soon as you connect to community. So that's one thing I would say is just try and commit, connect to community, but we be wise about it because not all community is great and you want to Find a way to vet whatever party you're going to before you just show up at some party, right? Make sure you're going to a good party with good people. For most women, that's their journey. They have some of those fears along with, am I going to be pretty enough? Am I going to be this or that enough? And as soon as they connect to community, a lot of that melts away pretty quickly. As far as the sex addiction part, as a sex positive therapist, I have a tendency to use the language sexual compulsive rather than addict for certain reasons, which, which is a whole conversation. But basically, I, I'll tell them, as long as you have agency, then you're not a sexual compulsive. If you are going to some of these events, if you're having these experiences and you're able to set boundaries, you're able to maintain your jobs and your friendship, and it's not breaking down your life and you're able to say yes when it's a true yes, that, that kind of thing, you're not operating like a sexual compulsive. A lot of times a sexual compulsive, they have the experience and then they go into the shame spiral the next day, you know, and they don't have as much agency over their choices. It's very 
it's very compulsive, right? So once I explain explain that differentiation, a lot of times they feel better about that. It's just so interesting to hear the clinical aspect, your experience, and how many moving components there really are, because I really feel like there are so many misconceptions of non-monogamy. And I really struggle with are we really meant to be monogamous, even though I prefer monogamy, but at, at, at some level, I feel like as a human species, we're not really meant to be monogamous. And that's just my opinion. But you know, so I teeter totter with it. Now, let's talk about your book, because you have a book out. And I want to kind of talk about what it's about. Where can people find it? I'm going to link it for everybody. But um, what, what made you want to write this book? You know, it's so a lot of things. The personal story was, you know, as I've mentioned to you, way back in 2003 is when it was first introduced to me. I didn't know about some of the major books that were out there. There was really at that point only one major book out there, The Ethical Slut by Janet Hardy and Dosi Easton. And I'll have to say that that book is amazing and it's still on the charts on Amazon, etc., way up there. Uh, but it's, it's a one-on-one book. It's just, it's, it's just there to reduce shame and tell you some of the basics and, and it does a great job doing that. Right. So even if I knew about that, it literally wouldn't have addressed some of the things that I need to have addressed, but long story short, I had to learn the hard way all the way along. So one intention behind this book is to create a book so people don't have to learn the hard way. So that they know how to ground their body and make choices from a grounded, centered place with their full compass. The book is complex and it hits a lot of things, you know, in terms of how do you manage triggers? Like what if you have a mood disorder and you're non-monogamous? What if you're dating someone with narcissism and you're non-monogamous? You know, like mm-hmm. it it talks about it's it's got a lot of breadth and depth, But it does start out in a lot of ways from that place of let's talk about the attachment styles. Now let's talk about attachment injuries. Now let's talk about your triggers. Now let's talk about how to ground your triggers. Now let's talk about how that feeds into the epic communication style. The end of the book talks about things like how to maintain your relationship. If you are in a primary or nesting partner relationship, how do you make sure that you stay connected when you've got all this going on around you? you know, and I talk about different ways to do that. And at the end of the book, I talk about, uh, there's a chapter on coming out, which for a lot of folks, uh, coming out as non-monogamous can be super hard for a lot of reasons. It's like the Bible of (laughs) non-monogamy. That's what it sounds like. (laughs) Well, I I definitely tried to write the 102 book because there's some very excellent 101 books, both the ethical Mm -hmm. slut and, uh, Opening Up by Tristan Terramino are both very solid 101 books. And so this book, I tried to have it be both the 101 and the 102 book. Two book. So there's mm-hmm. part one, which is only three chapters where I plow through the, the basics. And then part two is the whole rest of the book, which is all about the stuff that I just mentioned. I love it. And I'm so grateful and glad that there is people like you who are educating on this subject because I think that we need to get out of this box of it's only one way and this is the only way because that's just not the case. Everybody's different. It's subjective. We're all spiritual living a human experience and your path is your path. And unfortunately, 
Are you going to come across people that are going to be judgmental? That's the reality of the world we live in. But I think the more the more education that people are putting out there, like how you do on your social media with your book, coming on podcasts like this, I think will help expand the minds of other people and maybe even people that are scared to try this, but really want to. So I appreciate you and you know, just thank you so much for everything you're sharing. And I always have a tradition on this podcast before I close out to asking my guests, you know, if you could give yourself one piece of advice to your younger self, what would that be? Oh goodness. Um, you know, I, I, you know, it's interesting. I think everything in my life had to go down the way it did to get me to this, this place. But, you know, I, I think I just remind her to just keep on doing what you're doing. Just, just love yourself and, and know that even the roughest parts or maybe especially the roughest parts are the spiritual journey and that from the times that you experience crisis will come the biggest blessings. I love that. That's so powerful. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you. I can't wait for everyone to listen to this episode. And if you guys like this episode, please tag us both. We want to hear from you. So thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on. And I love your podcast. You're doing amazing work. And thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you.